Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer incentive offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models and dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark. From NBI Studios, this is Truth and Justice, a crowdsourced investigation in real time. I'm Bob Ruff. everybody and welcome into the first Friday follow-up episode for season seven. For those of you that are new to the Truth and Justice podcast and don't know how this works, every Sunday we release a what we call our main episodes, which are what you heard this past Sunday. They are kind of a narrative storytelling reporting of the current investigation that we're doing here to get information out to you. We then share documents and things on our website. If you haven't been there yet, it's truthandjusticepod.com. Um, not a lot of documents with this first episode because it was mostly interviews with people, but there's a few up there. And then what we do is we put out a call out for through all of our social media, you can, on Twitter or on Facebook. Most of the questions come from the Truth and Justice podcast fans page. So if you're not a member there, that's a good place to go because we put a thread up there every week asking for questions for this follow up. And then, uh, you, the listeners, write in questions and add comments and theories, and then we discuss them. Now, we're doing things a little bit different this season than we've done in the past. We're at least going to try it. We can see how long it takes before we fire him. But, uh, we've brought in Mr. Zach Weaver. Hey, guys. Uh, Zach, and of course, this is Mike over here. Hello. For our new listeners, you don't maybe not know who Mike is. Mike is our executive producer. Uh, he is, he works side by side with me all week long, and he does all of our editing. And he's the one that puts together these follow-up episodes. And so the, the normal format is Mike asks questions, which is exactly what he's going to do. And then I answer them. But what we've added to that is Zach being in the room to sort of represent you, the listeners. Zach, actually, he's, he's a host of one of our other NBI shows, Made Us Podcast. Uh, it's a really great show. You should check it out if you haven't. Um, but he also happens to live down the road and he uses, records out of our studio. So usually he knows a little bit about what's going on in the, in the cases we're working on, but, uh, you know, we can't be friends anymore with you being on the podcast. Yeah, it's strange. In years past, or in cases past, we've been able to talk a lot more. And uh, now we've purposely not talked about the cases when we're hanging out. Yeah. So it's, uh, it's different. Yeah, Zach and Michelle were over for a barbecue Sunday. And as soon as we wanted to talk about the new episode, like, nope, 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 nope. Yep. We're going to wait. Um, so Zach is here representing you, the listeners. Um, and hopefully that'll be a springboard to some conversations. And so after this episode, keep in mind that you can participate in these in a couple of ways, either through any of the methods that I just mentioned through our email or Facebook or Twitter, or Instagram to ask questions, or you can even call in. We have a voicemail line, which is 269-224-2833. It's also repeated in the credits. Keep in mind when you call that line, it's also our tip line. So when you hear a, a message, both in English and in Spanish, 
saying you can leave tips on the cases. That is where we take tips, but we also take voicemails for questions on the podcast there. And the last little bit of housekeeping for the new listeners to let you know, as you know, our, our entire project is funded by advertising. That's how we do the work we do for the wrongfully convicted people that we work with and trying to find justice for the victims. It's, uh, it's all free to you, it's funded by advertising. Some of you don't like the ads. If you do not like listening to ads, uh, you can always go to our Patreon page, which is patreon.com slash truthandjustice. And there, if you are, I think it's called Silver Level Patron, whatever, it's $5 a month. For that, you can get all the episodes without ads and also get videos of these follow-up episodes. We record all these and put them up for our Patreon sponsors. Uh, and then I th think that's enough housekeeping, Mike, so why don't we go ahead and get us started. Sounds good to me, man. Texas Ranger James Holland is a legendary interrogator. They call him the serial killer whisperer. You can't hide those indications, and that's why yesterday I knew that you did it. But now, shocking interrogation tapes reveal how the super cop really operates. And that's why they asked me to come in, because I'm special. From something else, The Marshall Project and Sony Music Entertainment, this is Smokescreen. Just say you're sorry. Listen and follow on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Okay, our first couple questions come from Wendell. Wendell asks, how long minimum to maximum would it take someone to put air into their tires? <laughs> it's out of context. <laughs> that's, that's it. That's it. That's all I, I got. It. It's out of, it's out it's of, out of context. <laughs> right. It is out of context because uh, Wendell had a much longer post, but uh, he he's trying to figure out. So if you remember the episode, and Zach, you remember that you know Danny Martinez was the witness that was at the gas station for putting air in his tires. And we have our, kind of our timeline of when the silent alarm was pressed, which was 8.16, to when the officers arrived at 8.21. And he's, he's kind of wondering how long it could be for him to be there. I think not very long. Yeah, I don't think it's very long. I mean, anytime I've ever had to put air in my tires, I mean, honestly, even if you have to go in for change, two minutes. Right. Right. Well, I was thinking here at our local Speedway, we have... Uh, we actually know how long it takes because they have the one where you pay, and okay. then it, it's it's nice because it automatically inflates to the right uh, psi. But that one, when you put your dollar in, it gives you five minutes. Okay, and I know that five minutes is enough time for me to fill up all four of my tires. And it's a slow process because it's automatic, so it like puts two psi in, then it reads it, and then it puts two more in and reads it. As opposed to back in '91, where you just grab the airline and just psh, that yeah. looks right. You know, maybe if you were really Really paying attention, you use a, a gauge. Yeah, a tire gauge. Yeah, but how often do you actually fill four tires? Yeah, and that's the thing is, he said he filled a tire. He yeah. had, I think he said he had in the full interview, he had one tire that kept going flat, and so he pulled. So, in layout wise, his house. And I don't know if that was clear from the episode, but Danny Martinez literally lived right next to the gas station. Okay, so his driveway was ran parallel to. There was basically a fence between his driveway. And where that air pump was. There was a fence there? Yeah. In the crime scene photo. So when we were there, remember, it was like, it was like a privacy fence? Yeah. It, now, yeah. it was back then I saw in the crime scene photos, it was actually a chain link fence. But so he just literally back out of his driveway and then pull straight in, you know, 10 feet further to the left. And he was right there at the air pumps. Okay. But I don't, I don't think that it would have taken very long. The whole story sounds suspect to me. We don't have a great idea of the timeline just yet. I mean, we know the window. Yeah. We know Bill was alive at 816, and we know when Pilo got there at 821 that he didn't see anybody coming out of the gas station, but then we got a kink thrown into that when Martinez says that he did see someone come out of the gas station. 
All right, Wendell's next question is, is it possible that Bill pushed the silent alarm button after he was shot? He says that would give the suspect more time to escape. I don't think at this point we can rule anything out, but I don't think that that is very probable based on what we heard when we talked to Steve Hill, uh, the other gas station attendant. He wasn't even sure where the button was. And then uh, we have another person you're going to hear from on Sunday that worked at another Clark gas station that gave us a little insight into that. But so we'll get into that more on Sunday, but I don't I, I don't think that he pushed it after he was shot. I just, I, I don't, the crime scene doesn't seem to indicate that, but we're also still waiting on some, some better, clearer crime scene photos to get a better idea of that as well. Yeah. I think that that's possibly the reason he was shot is even though it's a silent alarm, mm-hmm. the perpetrator would know he made a movement. Right. That to me lends towards it happening before he was shot. I, I think so too. I think, um, I mean, I don't know yet. There's just the whole, t- the whole crime itself right now is such a, a mystery and we're starting to mike before we recorded he and i were starting to talk about starting to develop a profile because we've started doing some victimology which you all listeners are going to hear about on sunday and the more and more i'm looking at it it seems like i don't think this was just a robbery gone wrong i think there may be something else to it but we got a long way to go there still yeah that's just like i said though that's my theory is if you were to stick someone up i know it's more movies but that's a reaction is you put your hands up Mm -hmm. and then if your hands are up you have to go for a button. Clearly, it's not there. So right. the button is typically under a counter. Mm-hmm. So the perpetrator definitely saw him reach, which is, like I said, again, lends to him being alive at that point, rather than, like, the question is, could he have hit it after he was shot? Right. Well, and, but even to that point, because we talked about that a little bit, too, I'm trying to think of just human behavior. If that happens, if, if you're the guy sticking somebody up, your whole sole intent and purpose is to get some money out of this guy. Yeah. So he's hit the no-sale button twice before the silent alarm. Uh, so uh, you would assume that means he's already given him the money. Yeah. So he reaches under, say he sees him press the silent alarm button. When that happens, I would think that the instinct would be just to get the hell out of there. Y- you'd you, think so. You know, I don't see how that triggers somebody into, oh, here's a good chance now I might get caught. So let me turn a robbery of 90 bucks into murder. It just, you know, I'm not, not to say that that's not what happened, but it just, it seems like that's part of the reason why I keep thinking, man, there's got to be more to this because I don't see why someone, even if they knew he hit the silent alarm, to me, that would be a trigger just to get away, yeah. run. Cause you know, the police are going to be there in a matter of minutes. Why take more time to murder the guy and then run? Well, unless you think he's going for a firearm. That could be too. You know what I mean? If, if, you, if I was a suspect, you mm-hmm. know, attacking you. And I see you violently move from under the counter. You don't know what they're going for. Right. Either. Could have been a gun, something like yeah. that. Yeah. Or if I, I really do, as of right now, think that 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 could be a trigger for somebody because the perpetrator might not been might not have been a, a real smart guy. He might have mm-hmm. been a real hostile person. He might have got angry. He was probably pretty aggressive with Bill, right? Yelling at him, telling him not to hit the button or what, right. or not to, you know, whatever. Um, and then I, I think that maybe if he was if he was hostile or angry enough, I think that Bill pressing the button maybe could have been enough to set him over the edge to shoot his gun. Just an F you pop pop and yeah. get out of there. It's possible. I and mean, we got a long, a long way to go still. And uh, we're definitely going to bring in some experts to look at this because I'm, I'm curious even to what the statistics are. To me, logically, it makes the most sense that most gas station robberies don't end in someone getting shot. No, that's true. You know, I, I don't think that, you know, most people are going to fight over that money. It just, so 
I don't know. We got a lot more to go as we move forward, but an interesting both your guys' theories on that. Next, he says, I get Bob's theory about the no sale button, but then why do we think that the no sale button was pushed multiple times between 806 and 816? And why the long interval before the alarm button is pushed? I don't know. That's a that's a good question. It's I think that it's fair to say that it's, it's safe to assume, I should say, that the no sale buttons are connected to the burglary. Yeah. I mean, it just you, when you have two of them, you know, eight fifteen or was it eight fourteen, eight fifteen, and then the alarm at eight sixteen. I think. Yeah. Yeah, and, and then the one ten minutes before that at eight oh six. Um, certainly they're connected. Why so many? I don't know. I th- it, Could that be indicative of a struggle? You know, I was thinking it could be too. You hit the first, maybe not the first no sale. Maybe the first no sale is that gas exchange. Or the, the I think it was a gas exchange. Yeah, it was discussed. But maybe the second one is, hey, give me the money in the drawer. You open the drawer, you give him the money, you close the drawer. And he says, no, give me all the money because you expect to have more. Right. Where it was, you know, it was, it was $97, I think. Yeah, I think so. So maybe the perpetrator thinks that, you know what I mean? Like, give me the money. Here's the money. Close the drawer. And you go, no, give me all the money. Right. Because they keep, they tend to keep big bills under. Yeah. So they open it again. Could you stop hitting the table? Sorry. <laughs> it's motions. I talk with my hands a lot. New guy, Zach. That's Zach the new guy. I do it in my podcast Hitting too, the table. So. <laughs> but yeah, I think that that's, that's reasonable. I, I thought about, I, and it's been, it's been thrown out to me that maybe it was like a struggle. Like, you know, if the perp himself was the one reaching over, hitting the no sell button and Bill's closing the drawer or trying to stop him from taking the money, that doesn't, I don't think that's going to happen. I just, yeah. it doesn't seem to add up. But yeah, that, that, maybe that is. Maybe he just, you know, opens up and gives him some cash and he's like, you know, there's, I know there's more money in there or something like that. Because yeah. yeah. ultimately the entire, um, the whole drawer was gone. The, okay. the tail that, you know, the insert that fits in, that whole thing was missing. Yeah. And there's also something to be said about if the perp knew where the no sale button was too. Yeah. And again, that would, that would factor into a profile. If that's the case, then we're looking for somebody that's worked retail. They've worked at a cash register somewhere. Yeah. Um, but again, I, I think at this, at this point, and really we're just absolutely hypothesizing at this point based on very little information, but it's, I think, I think they're good discussions. It's a good critical thinking to have these discussions. I, th- I think the most likely scenario is probably, I hadn't really thought about it, but what you said, Zach, that they probably hit the button, gave them some money and they told them to hit it again because they insisted there had to be more in there. I would think that I w- I've seen when you pay cash for something, you notice if yeah. you give them a big bill, they tend to lift the little tray up and slide the money the the big bills underneath yep exactly yeah so it could have been something like that all right jennifer wants to know did the gas station robberies in town stop after the escalation in the violence in this case they did not and i'm I'm still looking into a lot of these um we have uh you know the the people that that brought the case to us that have already amassed a lot of the case files and stuff have have done a lot of this research already and have a lot of newspaper articles. I want to do some more research myself, but no, it seems that there was there was quite a string of not just I'm seeing not just gas station robberies, but but small retail establishment armed robberies prior to for all the way from '89 up to '91. There was you heard Steve Vogel on the on the show last week mention the um uh, the the murder the triple homicide at the liquor store. That's one of that's what really triggered the police to to begin this task force to try to try to stop these. But then they did still continue afterwards. And it seems like on the surface, at least based on newspaper articles, that there are some similarities in M.O. both prior to and after Bill Little's murder. Tracy says, I thought an eyewitness seeing something and then a cop seeing something different was definitely perplexing. Was the cop never at trial then? 
The cop was at trial. That's Officer Jeff Pilo. Uh, he did testify at trial. But keep in mind that a lot of the stuff, um, that recording, that interview, uh, there's a lot of things that were discovered after trial. So at trial, it definitely was not made clear that Jeff Pilo saw something very different than what Danny Martinez saw. Basically, at trial, his testimony was used to, and we're going to get into all this testimony and stuff later, um, but his testimony was used to corroborate Danny Martinez by him saying, yes, I saw this man there. It was it was kept very limited so that by him saying that, now the jury believes, okay, now I believe this guy who says that he saw the robber because the officer said that he was there. He says he was there, so he's corroborated. Okay, here's the situation. Our daughter Mia is leaving for her first sleepover. We have friends coming to stay, and we just got a puppy. So I go on Instacart and solve everything in one order from Kohl's. Fun PJs for Mia. Oh, new bedding for the guest room. And a vacuum cleaner that actually picks up pet hair. All delivered in as fast as 30 minutes. With Kohl's on Instacart, there's no such we can't fix. Visit instacart.com to get free delivery on your first three orders. Offer valid for a limited time. $10 minimum order. Additional terms apply. Don't you love an extra $100 in your pocket? Have a TurboTax expert file your taxes for you by March 31st to get $100 back instantly. Because no matter what moves you made last year, TurboTax makes them count. That means getting $100 back and 100% accurate taxes only from Intuit TurboTax. Must file by 331. Credit only applicable to federal filing fees with TurboTax full service. Offer can be modified or terminated at any time. Next, she says, I was wondering if you can tell us what made you pick this case. What stood out to you that said, quote, we need help? A lot of things. Um, one big thing was that on the surface, so we have, if you look at our case submission form, there's some certain questions that we ask on there that we have the, the people fill out when they're submitting a case to us. And the reason for that is, is because in our studies of wrongful convictions, we know that there is usually a pattern. Like one of those patterns is jailhouse snitches. And we're going to get to that again all later, but there was a lot of jailhouse snitches. And then I look and see, okay, what's the prosecutor's theory? And does it make sense to use a phrase that I don't like to use? But, you know, it doesn't make sense. Is it provable? When I look at the prosecution side, do I believe that happened? And so the first thing I noticed is when I looked at the prosecution's theory of this case, it it did not add up to me. It did not. It certainly did not seem like a strong. I'm not saying that it's wrong, but it's it's not an evidence supported theory. Uh, and and then I I start to look at does the evidence seem to indicate that something else happened? And in this case, I believe that it does. And that's the that's the case with a lot of cases that that come to us. But in this particular one, and then I looked at. There's been a little bit of media on this case. I think Crime Watch Daily did a little piece on it or something. And then the other thing I'm always looking for is, has anyone put any attention at all on the victim? And in this case, they have not. All of the media coverage, everything is about the guy that was convicted, nothing about the victim. And that bothers me for two reasons. One, that's it's not fair to the victim. It's not fair for them to not be a part of their own story. I feel like their voices were stolen away from them when that happens. And I feel like their memory gets lost and corrupted and gets lost in the shuffle of the free fill-in-the-blank, whatever movement is going on, whatever case. And then the other piece of that is, that tells me that no one ever really studied victimology, and you cannot have 
a proper investigation of any homicide without a thorough, in-depth study of victimology. And because it appears that that had never been done in this case, that's just another reason for me to believe that it's very likely that the police got it wrong because they missed this critical step. And and then one other thing that really led us into this uh, particular case, and on top of all those reasons, was that we have had a lot of assets with the case in the fact that there have been other people out there that have FOIA'd and, and an open records request for a lot of the documents and recordings in the case, and there's already a massive case file uh, that needed someone to go through it and investigate it. Because as you know, that tends to be one of our biggest struggles when we start a new case is to is to get a hold of the documents. We don't know if we're going to be fighting with the DA's office. We don't you know. In Sandy Melgar's case, we got a little bit up front, but then it was it wasn't a fight, but it was just months and months and months of waiting for it, and then we got it, and then uh, it wasn't wasn't entirely complete. Um, not to say anything bad, I, I've mentioned before from season six, Brian Rose from the DA's office in Harris County is fantastic. He's done a really good job of getting us what we needed, but it takes a long time. In this case, we already have the trial transcripts, we have the police reports, we have crime scene photos. It's not complete, but there's a lot there. So it allowed me in the screening process to dig deeper into this case than I have been, been able to in any other case because that material was already available to us. So I could, you know, I, I wasn't going to start and then finally get the case file and be like, oh, well, this guy's guilty. You know, not to say that he's, I mean, it could be that he is, but I, I, at least there's no big surprises coming because I've had the, the time and the materials to research deeply into the case before we started. Is there a typical turnaround time on, on how you'd get those files? Just depends. I mean, there's, there's been some, you know, in Smith County, when I first started working there before they hated me, it, it was, I, I called up the clerk's office said I want to come in. No one knew who I was. Okay. You know, no one knew who the truth and justice was. We were relatively new. They said, you know, it could take this long to produce them unless you can come in, then you can, you know, go through them yourself. In that case, I hopped on a plane two days later, walked right in, had the entire case file and scanned it all myself. So I had it right away. Other times it was, it, it can be a long fight. It just depends on, there are very clear laws about what has to be produced, what is considered an open record or a public record, but there are a lot of games district attorney's office and state's attorney's offices can play. You know, they can, they can wait 90 days before they give it to you. And uh-huh. then you finally file a complaint and they say, okay, fine, here it is. Then you get it and stuff's missing and it's over redacted. Then you got to file another complaint and that process can take years. Okay. Erica says, do we know the reason why Bill wanted his friend to stay at the station with him until the end of his shift? No, we don't. I wish we did. Uh, And uh, Danny Hartley, somebody that I'm hoping to be able to get a hold of. I'm I'm hoping through this process, people aren't as easy to track down as you might think. But one of the things, especially for you new listeners to understand that in this process, a lot of the reason why, you know, this is a crowdsourced investigation. We're asking for your help. And, you know, I'm definitely not ever looking for people to go track people down and bother people or harass people. So do not do that. But we're always hoping that maybe maybe someone's listening that is friends with that person or or, or knows them or is related to them that might be able to help us get in contact so we could talk to them. Because I really would like to know in that study of victimology and with Bill Little, you know, Danny says he didn't want him to leave. Does, in the interview we have, he doesn't really say why. I'd like to know why, if he was scared or... If he just, you know, didn't want to hang out alone, was bored, I don't know. Yeah, as a listener, I mean, that screams, that just screams to me that something was there 
that if he didn't want him to leave, there was a reason. Especially if he, right. the way it sounded in the interview, and maybe I'm wrong, it sounded like he never asked for him to stay before. The way that I yeah. heard the interview. He said that. He said, yeah, he's never asked me to stay before. So that's but he strange did that, that he asked him to stay. I mean, that just screams it's, that it seems like Bill knew something was going on. Right. And, you know, there was that string of other robberies. But as I've looked into that further since then, it wasn't like there were... You know, five gas stations held up in the days before. This was something that was going on for years. So I I don't think it was anything like that. I don't think it was just, well, there's people getting robbed, so I don't want you to be here because I'm going to get robbed. It seems to me, it could be nothing, but it seems to me that for some reason, Bill maybe had a feeling something was going to happen that yeah. night. And what's up with him saying in his interview that he would stay and work with him? Like, who, who goes somewhere to to do their buddy's job for them for free. I thought that was weird too. I don't I mean maybe maybe he's a really good friend. Yeah, I mean I could see it though because that does happen. Let's say you and I are hanging out and I want you to get off work early. Right. So like I'm going to sweep the floor for you. It doesn't it's not a ton of work. You know yeah, what I mean? Yeah, I mean I've Things done like stuff that. like that before. I thought it was odd that he said most nights I was there most nights helping yeah. him work and close. We've we've been to the site that the gas station's gone, but we've seen the crime scene photos. It's a it's a tiny place. Yeah. I mean, it's real tiny, and we're going to get the crime scene photos up this week. We're, we're, tra- we're working on getting some better photos. That's why we haven't we haven't put them up yet, because we have really grainy black and white ones. But, I mean, it's the type of gas station where you walk in, and the counter's right there. And if you turn to your right, there's maybe, I mean, probably less, maybe the size of this room, which is 12 by 16. You know, there's maybe, maybe 12, 15 feet back of just a little section. There's some coolers. You know, a lot of that space is eaten up by coolers. And a couple, and like maybe two shelves, and then there's a bathroom in the the back. The bathroom was in the back corner. The bathroom for customers was outside. The bathroom for the attendant was through a, a storage room. But it's a it's a tiny place. I mean, type of place. My point is, it would take you two minutes to sweep the floors. Yeah. You know, there's just it's just not a big place. So I don't know. I'm curious about that too. Again, another reason I'd like to talk to Danny. Leah says I'm a little confused about the timeline. In particular, I'm not clear on how BPD's Jeff Pilo could be across the street when the murder happened. The panic button was pressed some six minutes before. Could you clarify that sequencing? Well, the, again, the timeline is very confusing. It's not necessarily all that confusing, except for Danny Martinez's statement. So if we take Jeff Pilo's statement, panic button's pushed at 8.16, 8.17, dispatch gets at 8.18, he's dispatched, he makes the drive, it's three minutes for him to get to the crime scene, gets out of his car, and, and approaches on foot, uh, and when he gets there... Nobody there. Nobody comes out of the gas station. So then you could assume, so sometime between 816 and 821, the panic button was pushed, Bill was shot, the the perpetrator fled the scene, and they were gone by the time he got there. But then the kink gets thrown into it when Martinez says he saw somebody coming out. And so that's the the confusing part. I can't imagine why. And, and it wasn't just Pilo there. So there was another officer there, um, Officer Williams, that was parked at the intersection at that same time all of this was happening. And nobody saw anybody and, and Williams had a great clear shot right to the right to the corner of, of the gas. He was parked at Linden and Empire, uh southwest in the which is the southwest intersection of the gas station. The doorway into the gas station was on the southwest corner. So he had a had a straight shot looking right into it. Nobody saw anything except Danny Martinez. So don't feel bad that you're you're having trouble comprehending the timeline because it's it's confusing and it's it's not making a lot of sense at this point. Kelly says, "Do we know what time Bill was scheduled to end his shift?" Not exactly. Oddly, um, I haven't seen the documents from some people that have studied the case quite a bit already. 
It seems like maybe 9 o'clock was the time he was supposed to get off. I think from the rest of Danny Hartley's interview, it indicates it was 9 o'clock. But then um, we've seen from some other other incidents and the reports that I'm reading about other gas station robberies that they closed at 11, but it was Easter. So I don't know. It seems if Danny Hartley's story is accurate, I would think 9 because he said he left about 8 because he was going to go home and change and come back and pick Bill up. Yeah. And And as the interview goes on, which we'll hear more of that later, he does come back, and by then, you know, the, the crime scene tapes up and all that stuff's going on. Uh, so it would seem to me he thought that he was going to be getting, and, and the fact that at eight o'clock he's telling him, "Oh, we just don't leave, just stay." That maybe he's getting off. Yeah, you're so, not going to ask your friend to stay for two or three more hours, right? I, I think that I think the best estimate is that Bill was scheduled to be off by nine o'clock, um, and hopefully we'll have that answer soon. We did part of when Mike and I were down in Bloomington a couple weeks ago. You know, we were trying to track, I was actually trying to track down the, um, uh, the manager at the gas station that the, the came in that night and then the next day, um, to ask some of these questions. And, um, we didn't get to talk to her. We talked to someone else. I'm not sure who that person was, but he did not care to speak with me. And so therefore neither did she. She, I never got to, I don't even, she wasn't even home. Carla says, do you know what the weather was like on the night of the murder? What was the temperature and road conditions? She says, I ask because I live up in Massachusetts, and even at Easter, it could be cold and iced up roads. I was thinking of tire marks or tread marks. I'm thinking the true killer would be moving fast to put some distance between the crime and himself. We do know the, uh, we, I mentioned on the show, um, but to clear that up, also a little shout out to Shane Yoder, because I actually misspoke in the, when I was giving the sunset time and everything. I said the wrong time, and it was too late by then. I was out of town. Mike was gone for the weekend. And when I heard it in review and Shane, literally, so when I say on the podcast that it was 6.19 p.m., which is about the 16-minute mark Shane made sure to share with me, uh, <laughs> Shane built me saying six in there from other audio pieces in there, uh, just a little behind the scenes. But yeah, so the, it was actually a nice day. There was no snow. There was no rain, nothing. It was uh, the Mike looked up the forecast or the uh, the weather data from that day and it was, well, it was high of 59 degrees yeah. and fair skies. And sunset at 6.19 p.m., which and we've covered this in other cases, but if you're not familiar, sunset doesn't mean it's dark. You know, when the sun is officially sets, you got about 45 minutes to an hour before it's dark, dark then. It's, you know, there's there's the civil twilight and the nautical twilight or the different phases after that. So about probably 7 to 7.15 is when it would be dark, dark, which was, you know, about an hour before Bill was killed. Kelly says you may be getting to this, but was there any surveillance footage? There was not. Uh, I just interviewed someone who worked at another Clark station. You'll be hearing a little bit from him on Sunday, but one of the things he told me that he was concerned about, because he was robbed at his Clark gas station, uh, was that there were no surveillance cameras. And, and after his incident, he actually finally just left. He didn't feel safe working there anymore. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Lucky Land Casino. Asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. 
More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Pamela has two questions. First, she wants to know why, when answering a call to a potential robbery, does Pilo just watch and then allow a potential witness or person of interest to leave the station? She says, I don't know what the proper police procedures are in this situation, but you would think they wouldn't want people leaving the scene. Yeah, I'm a little curious about this myself. I, I do know that he has at least said that that was protocol, and and the protocol was that in an alarm like that, that you don't make entry until you have backup. And so he was waiting for, and there's, and there's a little question too about who was actually the first one in there. So you heard Pilo say it was him that he went in and then Officer Williams came in behind him. But I think that in one of Williams report, it says that he was the first one in there. But so, so Pilo approaches, parks his car, walks up to the scene to kind of sneak up on the scene is what he's doing. And then Williams pulls up in the street and then they both converged onto the scene. So there, there may be some protocol that they wait for backup. That makes some sense to me because as, as a, a fireman, um, we had certain protocols for any time there may be some perceived violence, uh, domestic violence, even um, uh, suicide. If someone called in for someone threatening suicide or that they think somebody had committed suicide or something like that, our protocol was we were not allowed to make entry as the medical team until after police cleared the scene. So we would have to stage like a block back until they got to the scene and cleared it. So there are some weird protocols with public safety that maybe we're not aware of. But yeah, to me, I would think that the it would just seem the smart thing to do would be come in, lights blaring, pull in the front. I mean, what do we, I don't understand what the advantage is of sneaking up on somebody. Yeah. Especially when they, you know, they hit the silent alarm. It's a panic alarm. If it's legit, and of course we don't know too, there could be a series of these false alarms too. Um, that happens in the fire service too, where you kind of get, uh, there's a, a case out of Memphis where several firefighters died for that exact reason because they they got several false alarms in the same building over and over again and they didn't take it seriously and they took an elevator when they weren't supposed to and didn't have their air packs on, elevator opens up and they all die. So it could be a, a situation similar to that where they just weren't taking it seriously. It doesn't sound like it, though. I mean, it sounds like he was he intentionally turned the lights off, parked south, approached on foot. I just don't understand the advantage of sneaking up on somebody yeah it doesn't really make a whole lot of sense it seems to me like he wanted to have the element of surprise if there was maybe a gunman in there he could sneak up on him and apprehend him without him knowing he was there it, it's possible too yeah and it, it, maybe you're right maybe it's like a hostage situation too or something where they don't want to they don't want to trigger the 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 killer to, pu- to pull the trigger you know that, that maybe that's why maybe that's why those protocols are written in there if somebody's holding a gun to him if they can sneak up on him if they knew the layout of that gas station they would know that there's only one way in and out. Uh, it's a little confusing for the crime scene photos. It's a big building, but what we found since then is the front half of the building was the service station, the gas station, and then the back half was an auto mechanic shop, but there was no doorway connecting the two. So that big part of the building towards the back was a separate business, or at least a separate building, same building, but they weren't connected. You couldn't walk in. So they're really, literally, the front door in and out of the gas station was the only way in and out. So. If a cop pulled up right in front of that door, nobody's going anywhere, which, to your point, Mike, maybe could have caused more of a problem. 
Okay, Daniel says, this may simply be in the odd category, but why did it take the nearest BPD officer three minutes to drive 0.9 miles? That averages to a speed of 20 miles per hour approaching a possible robbery in progress. Having grown up in the country, I know you can manage at least 35 miles per hour on gravel roads if you know what you are doing. So it's a little a little deceiving. The actual, it was less than a mile away. The route on the road was about a mile, like right at a mile. Google Maps says it's about a three-minute drive. We didn't make that drive because we didn't have that information quite yet when we were in town. But you got to understand, this is this is not, you could go faster on, on gravel roads. This is a populated area, some residential, some commercial, lots of stop signs, lots of stop lights. Um, that's why it takes so long to go that little bit of speed. You know, the speed limit's only 35 miles an hour. And keep in mind that police officers, again, I'll, I'll fall back to my firefighter training. I actually taught driver emergency vehicle operations as a class I used to teach for cops and firemen. And, you know, you don't, you are allowed to exceed the speed limit with your lights and sirens on. But what the, the law says that you can do that with, um, due regard for the safety of others, which means, Basically, anything is anything that happens is your fault. If you're exceeding the speed limit, it's your fault. It doesn't say you can go ten over or five over. So it, it's not safe to drive, even though you could turn your lights and sirens on and blast down down Linden or um, um, I don't remember the road that cuts to the east from east to west. It's Empire. Uh, Empire is where the gas station was, but the road he took, which was south oh. there to Linden. But, you know, you could blast down there at 80 miles an hour, but you're probably going to kill somebody because there's stop signs there along the way. There's cross traffic that's not stopping. So you literally have to slow down at every intersection where there's a light. You need to come to a complete stop and make sure everyone sees you. So it's, it's not like you think we're like on a country road where you can just unload and go. You, you've got to, you got to slow down at every single one of those intersections. And then also there's a time where he parks his car and gets out, which is when he, he radioed in, uh, that he was on the scene. So. I, I think three minutes is is about what I would expect for yeah. him to make that drive. Point A to point B in the country is a lot different than point A to point B in a city with traffic and everything else. Right. And you also have to assume that, that the other traffic is getting out of the way. Right. And that doesn't always happen. I mean, you see it all the time. Yeah, I've seen it. And he was driving a squad car. I've seen mm-hmm. it in a 50,000-pound fire truck with air horns blowing. And yeah, and the cars just, just stay in the way. Stacy wants to know, will we be hearing from Bill's family? Do they believe justice has been served, or do they believe the wrong person has been convicted? Um, I, I'm not going to speak for Bill's family. I don't know what they believe. I do know we, we will not be, at least at this point, we will not be hearing from his family. I have not communicated with them directly, um, but some of Bill's friends that I have spoken to have reached out to them kind of on my behalf to talk to them, and they have they've said that they are not not interested in in commenting and not just specifically our podcast, but just in anything in general about, about Bill's case. So as of right now, based on, based on what I've had relayed to me from friends of Bill's family, uh, we will not be hearing from them. Yeah. A lot of times in cases, not just cases, but a lot of times in, in tragedies like this, the family just wants to try to get over it, especially with this much time that's passed. Yeah. They don't want to keep bringing it up. We, it, we had an incident in our family like that where my, uh, my stepmom's grand or my stepmom's parents died in a car accident, was hit by a, a semi driver. Mm-hmm. And then probably 15 years later, that, that same semi driver hit and killed another couple. And the news came to talk to the family and the family right. shut it down really quickly. So a lot of times the family just don't, they don't want to talk about it anymore. Right. Well, and that's, that's been my experience with all these. I think back to, you know, Heyman Lee, yeah. her family in season one, they never wanted to talk to Sarah Candy or Serial or anybody. 
at Aid's family. I actually eventually did talk to Elnora Griffin's son after we concluded the podcast, but that took a lot of doing to, to get him on the phone. Season three, Kiao Go. Remember, we, we kind of caught Kiao's son, Kirby, off guard before because we, we hadn't started the season yet. And I called him and he talked to me. Nice guy. Uh, and, you know, told him what we were doing, didn't have a problem with it. And even in that moment said that, you know, he's, well, yeah, I'm, you know, yeah, call me with any, anytime. I'm, I'm willing to talk with you. And then after that point, never responded to anything ever again. You know, he was just being polite, I think, but yeah. he didn't want to bring that back up. So it's, it's, it's definitely not uncommon for a family, especially when you're, you're a podcast that, that focuses on wrongful convictions. Cause essentially what they're, what they're feeling immediately is that, okay, we finally had closure in our family member's death because this man got convicted. And now you're going to come drag it back up and, and then tell me I don't have closure now. Uh, so they most, most of the time families don't want to be involved, but with Bill's family, again, they were, they were from my, my understanding from what was relayed to me, they were, they weren't upset about what we were doing. They just didn't want to be involved. All right. And our last question comes from Tony. Tony says, I find the timing of the car backfiring suspicious. Did the police officer also hear that? That's a great question. And I, I don't know. There's There's been no reports in Pilo or uh, Officer Williams' statements that they heard car backfiring. It seems like odd timing with Martinez going back and forth and hearing the car backfiring when we're dealing with gunshots. I think that's, it, it, again, the timeline is so complex and confusing. When, we, it, when we're when we dealing with what we know for a fact is a five-minute window, it's incredible that there's so many gaps and questions with the timeline because you know if you if you listen to forget Pilo and only listen to what Danny Martinez says he's filling up his tires he's walking towards the station he hears something that sounds like backfires he turns around looks back and then sees a guy coming out there's your timeline right he witnessed he the, the backfiring were the gunshots and he witnessed the man leaving makes perfect sense but then if you Listen to just Pilo's testimony or his, his witness statement that he showed up at 821. He saw Martinez walk towards the gas station, go back, walk towards again, go back. Nobody ever came out of the gas station. That timeline seemed simple. We know the perpetrator, the murder had occurred and the perp was already gone by 821. But those two statements do not add up. And hopefully we're going to find these answers as we move forward in season seven. Truth and Justice is an NBI Studios production and is distributed by Wondery. Mike Bussing is our executive producer, and all music for the show is created and composed by PutThemInASong.com. Our Friday Follow-Up logo was created by Amanda Meyer with Willow Photo and Design. And all of our font across all of our logos and banners was created by Tate Krupa of Red Swan Graphic Design. You can find more of Tate's work on Etsy. I want to thank Katie Ross of CreatedInTandem.com for designing, creating, managing, and maintaining our website, TruthAndJusticePod.com where you can view all photos and documents discussed in every episode. Thank you to our transcription team, Natalie Alicia, Pamela Westby, Pam Maples, and Jen Reese in Candela. And as always, thank you to all of you for all of your engagement and support. If you like the show and you'd like to support us, you can do so in a number of ways. To financially support the show, you can go to patreon.com slash truthandjustice. On the Patreon page, you can pledge as little as $3 a month, and we have reward levels on Patreon that include access to behind-the-scenes videos of the tapings of our Friday follow-up episodes, ad-free versions of all of our episodes, 
Truth and Justice Army t-shirts and hats, and even the opportunity to co-host one of our Friday follow-up episodes. You can also help us out by going to iTunes and leaving us a five-star rating and review. And lastly, you can always support the show by supporting the companies that sponsor this program. If you have a new case that you'd like us to consider for future seasons, you can submit your cases on our website. Just click on the Case Submissions button and fill out the form. And the most important thing that you can do is engage in the investigations. You can keep in touch with us through our email at theories at truthandjusticepod.com. You can like our Facebook page or join in on the conversation on the Truth and Justice Podcast fans page. And for all of you tweeters, you can connect with us on Twitter. The show's handle is at truthjusticepod, and my personal Twitter handle is at bobruftruth. And you can also connect with Mike at mbussing89. For more personal interactions, feel free to follow me on Instagram at truthjusticepod. And don't forget that we always have our 24-7 voicemail line open for questions, comments, or tips on our cases. That phone number is 269-224-2833. However you do it, stay engaged, stay in touch. But as for now, we're signing off. I'm Bob Ruff. And I'm Mike Bussing. And this has been Truth and Justice. talking on the podcast <laughs> brought his a game today yeah, here's a blooper right there <laughs> let's go i've never done this before where i just hold dead air and just <laughs> right. wait for you to get mad right. <laughs> all right mm-hmm Let's cut that line though, because we're which one? <coughs> which one? The, the, the time I the thing I just said. The thing you spoke. I chimed in only with. because Damn it, that was so good. You know, it, I thought it was too. I was like, you it, know what? I'm finally loosening up. I'm coming into my own here on the mic. And, <laughs> Jesus Christ! Here we go. And let's nix it. <laughs> well, listen, listen. The only reason for that is this is so hard. We haven't. <laughs> we have made it. We have made it four days right. into this season without any drama yet, and any cops or prosecutors mad at us. You know, I I want to see fire them up. I want to see if we can. <laughs> I like Zach being here. You know, well, good. Why don't you ask a question? Let's go. God. All right. All right. <laughs> Next, she says, "I'm still laughing." <laughs> okay, now I'm done. In the weeks before, there were. <clears throat> Can we not cough on air? Right, I'll Please. try. Very unprofessional. You've seen the film. You know the game. Now, Jumanji just got real. Only at Chessington World of Adventures. Featuring Daredevil Dad, Mom on a Mission, and the kids who can't wait to ride the world's first Jumanji roller coaster. An epic adventure awaits. World of Jumanji. Only at Chessington World of Adventures. Book this summer's must-do day out at Chessington.com. Hey, guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun, too. It's a thing, and now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun, Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino-style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.
With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. You've worked hard for what you have. Your money, your assets, your 401k, and home. Isn't it all worth protecting? Nearly one in four consumers have been a victim of identity theft. LifeLock Ultimate Plus helps protect your finances with up to $3 million in reimbursement. LifeLock alerts you to identity threats you might miss. And if your identity is stolen, your dedicated U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. Let LifeLock help protect what you've worked so hard for. Save 25% off your first year on LifeLock Ultimate Plus at LifeLock.com aware. Terms apply. Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com aware.